Chapter 4 Specialized Knowledge Personal Experiences or Observations The fourth step to riches There are two kinds of knowledge. One is general, the other, specialized. General knowledge, no matter how great in quantity or variety it may be, is of but little use in the accumulation of money. The faculties of the great universities possess, in the aggregate, practically every form of general knowledge known to civilization. Most of the professors have not amassed great wealth. They specialize in teaching knowledge, but they do not specialize in the organization or the use of knowledge for the accumulation of money. Knowledge will not attract money, or any other kind of success, unless it is organized and intelligently directed, through practical plans of action, to the definite end of accumulating money. Lack of understanding of this fact has been the source of confusion to millions of people who falsely believe that, knowledge is power. It is nothing of the sort. Knowledge is only potential power. It becomes power only when, and if, it is organized into definite plans of action and directed to a definite end. This, missing link, in all systems of education known to civilization today may be found in the failure of educational institutions to teach their students how to organize and use knowledge after they acquire it. Many people make the mistake of assuming that because Henry Ford had but little schooling, he was not educated. Those who make this mistake did not know Henry Ford, nor do they understand the real meaning of the word, educate. The word is derived from the Latin word educo, meaning to educe, to draw out, to develop from within. An educated person is not necessarily one who has an abundance of general or specialized knowledge. To be truly educated is to have so developed the faculties of mind that one may acquire anything one wishes, or its equivalent, without violating the rights of others. Henry Ford comes well within the meaning of this definition. During World War I, a Chicago newspaper published certain editorials in which, among other statements, Henry Ford was called, an ignorant pacifist. Mr. Ford objected to the statements and brought suit against the paper for libeling him. When the suit was tried in the courts, the attorneys for the paper pleaded justification and placed Mr. Ford himself on the witness stand for the purpose of proving to the jury that he was ignorant. The attorneys asked Mr. Ford a great variety of questions, all of them intended to prove by his own evidence that, while he might possess considerable specialized knowledge pertaining to the manufacture of automobiles, he was, in the main, ignorant. Mr. Ford was plied with such questions as the following, who was Benedict Arnold? And, how many soldiers did the British send over to America to put down the rebellion of 1776? In answer to the last question, Mr. Ford replied, I do not know the exact number soldiers the British sent over, but I have heard that it was a considerably larger number than ever went back. Finally, Mr. Ford became tired of this line of questioning, and in reply to a particularly offensive question, he leaned over, pointed his finger at the lawyer who had asked the question, and said, if I should really want to answer the foolish question you have just asked or any of the other questions you have been asking me, let me remind you that I have a row of electric push buttons on my desk, and by pushing the right button, I can summon to my aid men who can answer any question I desire to ask concerning the business to which I am devoting most of my effort. Now, will you kindly tell me why I should clutter up my mind with general knowledge for the purpose of being able to answer questions when I have men around me who can supply any knowledge I require? There certainly was good logic to that reply. The answer flawed the lawyer. Every person in the courtroom realized it was the answer not of an ignorant man, but of a man of education. Any person is educated who knows where to get knowledge when it is needed and how to organize that knowledge into definite plans of action. Through the assistance of his mastermind group, Henry Ford had at his command all the specialized knowledge he needed to enable him to become one of the wealthiest individuals in America. 
It was not essential that he have this knowledge in his own mind. Surely no person who has sufficient inclination and intelligence to read a book of this nature can possibly miss the significance of this illustration. Before you can be sure of your ability to transmute desire into its monetary equivalent, you will require specialized knowledge of the service, merchandise, or profession which you intend to offer in return for fortune. Perhaps you may need much more specialized knowledge than you have the ability or the inclination to acquire, and if this should be true, you may bridge your weakness through the aid of your mastermind group. Andrew Carnegie stated that he personally knew nothing about the technical end of the steel business. Moreover, he did not particularly care to know anything about it. The specialized knowledge which he required for the manufacture and marketing of steel he found available through the individual units of his mastermind group. The accumulation of great fortunes calls for power, and power is acquired through highly organized and intelligently directed specialized knowledge, but that knowledge does not necessarily have to be in the possession of the person who accumulates the fortune. The preceding paragraph should give hope and encouragement the person who has ambition to accumulate a fortune, but who does not have the necessary education to supply such specialized knowledge as may be required. People sometimes go through life suffering from inferiority complexes because they are not well educated. Yet, the individual who can organize and direct a mastermind group of people who possess knowledge useful in the accumulation of money is just as educated as anyone in the group. Remember that if you suffer from a feeling of inferiority because your schooling has been limited. Thomas A. Edison had only three months of formal education during his entire life. Yet he did not lack education, nor did he die poor. Henry Ford had less than a sixth grade schooling, but he managed to do pretty well by himself financially. Specialized knowledge is among the most plentiful and the cheapest forms of service which may be had. If you doubt this, consult the payroll of any college or university. It pays to know how to purchase knowledge. First of all, decide the sort of specialized knowledge you require and the purpose for which it is needed. To a large extent, your major purpose in life, the goal toward which you are working, will help determine what knowledge you need. With this question settled, your next move requires that you have accurate information concerning dependable sources of knowledge. The more important of these are a, your own experience and education, b experience and education available through cooperation of others, mastermind aligned, c colleges and universities, d public libraries, through books and periodicals in which may be found all the knowledge organized by civilization, a special training courses through night schools and home. Study materials in particular, as knowledge is acquired, it must be organized and put into use, for a definite purpose, through practical plans. Knowledge has no value except that which can be gained from its application towards some worthy end. This is one reason why a college degree in itself is not valued more highly. It often represents nothing but miscellaneous knowledge. If you contemplate pursuing additional formal education, first determine the purpose for which you want the knowledge you are seeking, then learn where this particular sort of knowledge can be obtained from reliable sources. Successful people, in all callings, never stop acquiring specialized knowledge related to their major purpose, business, or profession. Those who are not successful usually make the mistake of believing that the knowledge acquiring period ends when one finishes school. The truth is that formal education does but little more than to put one in the way of learning how to acquire practical knowledge. We find ourselves in a changed world today, and we have also seen some astounding changes in educational requirements. The order of the day is SPECIALIZATION. This truth was emphasized by Robert P. 
Moore, quoted in a piece written when he was an administrator at Columbia University, specialists most sought, particularly sought after by employing companies are candidates who have specialized in some field business school graduates with training in accounting and statistics, engineers of all varieties, journalists, architects, chemists, and also outstanding leaders of the senior class. The graduate who has been active on the campus, whose personality is such that he or she gets along with all kinds of people and who has done an adequate job with studies has a most decided edge over the strictly academic student. Some of these, because of their all-around qualifications, have received several offers of positions, a few of them as many as six. In departing from the conception that the straighter student was invariably the one to get the choice of the better jobs, Mr. Boer said that most companies look not only to academic records but to activity records and personalities of the student. One of the largest industrial companies, the leader in its field, in writing to Mr. Boer concerning prospective seniors at the college, said, We are interested primarily in finding people who can make exceptional progress management work. For this reason we emphasize qualities of character, intelligence and personality far more than specific educational background. Apprenticeship proposed. Proposing a system of apprenticing students in offices, stores and industrial occupations during the summer vacation, Mr. Moore asserts that after the first two or three years of college, every student should be asked to choose a definite future course and to call a halt if the student has been merely pleasantly drifting without purpose through an unspecialized academic curriculum. Colleges and universities must face the practical consideration that all professions and occupations now demand specialists, he said, urging that educational institutions accept more direct responsibility for vocational guidance. One of the most reliable and practical sources of knowledge available to those who need specialized training is the night schools operated in most large cities. And correspondence schools give specialized training anywhere the U. S. Males go on all subjects that can be taught by the extension method. America is also blessed with an abundance of self-study books, courses, and other materials which one may use to acquire specialized training in knowledge. One advantage, in particular, of self-study training is the flexibility of the study program which permits one to study during spare time, during work breaks, or during travel point too. Anything acquired without effort and without cost is generally unappreciated, often discredited. Perhaps this is why we get so little from our marvelous opportunity in public schools. The self-discipline one receives from a definite program of specialized study makes up, to some extent, for the wasted opportunity when knowledge was available without cost. I learned this from experience early in my career. I enrolled for a home study course in advertising. After completing 8 or 10 lessons I stopped studying, but the school did not stop sending me bills. Moreover, it insisted upon payment whether I kept up my studies or not. I decided that if I had to pay for the course, which I had legally obligated myself to do, I should complete the lessons and get my money's worth. I felt at the time that the collection system of the school was somewhat too well organized, but I learned later in life that it was a valuable part of my training for which no charge had been made. Being forced to pay, I went ahead and completed the course. Later in life I discovered that the efficient collection system of that school had been worth much to me in the form of money I would later earn because of the training in advertising I had so reluctantly taken. We have in this country the greatest public school system in the world. We have invested fabulous sums for fine buildings. We have provided convenient transportation for children living in rural and other areas. But, there is one astounding weakness to this marvelous system it is free. One of the strange things about human beings is that they value only that which has a price. The free schools of America and the free public libraries do not impress people because they are free, or appear to be so. This is the major reason why so many people find it necessary to acquire additional training after they quit school and go to work. 
It is also one of the major reasons why employers give greater consideration to employees WHO participate regularly in self-study. Courses and other forms of professional development, they have learned from experience that any person who has the ambition to give up a part of his or her spare time, or to use slack time at work, for professional development, has those qualities which make for leadership. This recognition is not a charitable gesture. It is sound business judgment upon the part of the employer. There is one weakness in people for which there is no remedy. It is the universal weakness of lack of ambition. People, especially those on salary, who schedule their spare time and slack time to provide for self-improvement seldom remain at the bottom very long. Their action opens the way for the upward climb, removes many obstacles from their path, and gains the friendly interest of those who have the power to put them in the way of opportunity. The self-improvement or home study method of training is especially suited to the needs of employed people who find, after leaving school, that they must acquire additional specialized knowledge but cannot spare the time to go back to school. The changed economic conditions that now prevail have made it necessary for thousands of people to find additional or new sources of income. For the majority of these, the solution to their problem may be found only by acquiring specialized knowledge. Many will be forced to change their occupation entirely. When merchants find that a certain line of merchandise is not selling, they usually supplant it with another that is in demand. The person whose business is that of marketing personal services must also be an efficient merchant. If the services do not bring adequate returns in one occupation, the individual must change to another, where broader opportunities are available. Stuart Austin Byer prepared himself as a construction engineer and followed this line of work until the depression limited his market to where it did not give him the income he required. He took inventory of himself, decided to change his profession to law, went back to school, and took special courses by which he prepared himself as a corporation lawyer. Despite the fact the depression had not ended, he completed his training, passed the bar examination, and quickly built a lucrative law practice in Dallas, Texas. He actually had to turn away client. Just to keep the record straight and to anticipate the alibis of those who will say, I couldn't go school because I have a family to support, or I'm too old, I will add that Mr. Bayer was past 40 and married when he went back to school. Moreover, by carefully selecting highly specialized courses, in colleges best prepared to teach the subjects chosen, Mr. Bayer completed in two years the work for which the majority of law students require four years. It pays to know how to purchase knowledge. The person who stops studying merely because he or she has finished school is forever hopelessly doomed mediocrity, no matter what that person's calling. The way of success is the way of continuous pursuit of knowledge. Let us consider a specific instance. During the depression a salesman in a grocery store found himself without a position. Having had some bookkeeping experience, he took a special course in accounting, familiarized himself with all the latest bookkeeping and office equipment, and went into business for himself. Starting with the grocer for whom he had formerly worked, he made contracts with more than 100 small merchants to keep their books, at a very nominal monthly fee. His idea was so practical that he soon found it necessary to set up a portable office in a light delivery truck, which he equipped with modern bookkeeping equipment. He went on to create a fleet of these bookkeeping officers on wheels, and he employed a large staff of assistants, thus providing small merchants with accounting service equal to the best that money could buy, at very nominal cost. Specialized knowledge, plus imagination, were the ingredients that went into this unique and successful business. In only a short time, the owner of that business was paying an income tax of almost 10 times as much as was paid by the merchant for whom he worked, when the depression forced upon him a temporary adversity which proved to be a blessing in disguise. 
the beginning of the successful business was an idea. Inasmuch as I had the privilege of supplying the unemployed salesman with that idea, I now assume the further privilege of suggesting another idea which has within it the possibility of significant income, as well as the possibility of rendering useful service to thousands of people who badly need that service. The idea was initially suggested by the salesman who gave up selling and went into the business of keeping books on a wholesale basis. When that plan was suggested as a solution to his unemployment problem, he quickly exclaimed, I like the idea, Booty would not know how to turn it into cash. In other words, he complained he would not know how to market his bookkeeping knowledge after he acquired it. So that brought up another problem which had to be solved. With the aid of a creative young woman a typist who was clever at hand lettering and who could put the story together, he was able to prepare a very attractive portfolio describing the advantages of the new system of bookkeeping. She typed the pages neatly and pasted them in an ordinary scrapbook, which was used as a silent salesman, with which the story of this new business was told so effectively that its owner soon had more accounts than he could handle. There are thousands of people today in communities all over the country who could use the services of a merchandising specialist such as this woman, capable of preparing attractive materials for use in marketing personal services. The aggregate annual income from such a service might easily exceed that received by an employment agency, and the benefits of the service might be made far greater to the purchaser than any to be obtained from an employment agency. The idea here described was born of necessity, to meet an emergency which had to be covered, but it did not stop by merely serving one person. The woman who created the idea had a keen imagination. She saw in her newly born brainchild the making of a new profession, one that would render valuable service to thousands of people who needed practical guidance in marketing personal services. Spurred to action the instantaneous success of the first marketing plan for personal services, she prepared, this energetic woman turned next to the solution of a similar problem for her son, who had just finished college, but had been totally unable to find a market for his services. D. Plan she originated for his use was the finest specimen of merchandising of personal services I have ever seen. When the plan portfolio had been completed, it contained nearly 50 pages of beautifully typed, properly organized information, telling the story of her son's native ability, schooling, personal experiences, and a great variety of other information too extensive for description here. The portfolio also contained a complete description of the position her son desired, together with a marvelous word picture of the exact plan he would use in filling the position. The preparation of the portfolio required several weeks' labor, during which time its creator sent her son to the public library almost daily to procure information needed to sell his services to best advantage. She sent him also to all the competitors of his prospective employer to gather from them vital information concerning their business methods, which was of great value in the formation of the plan he intended to use in filling the position he sought. When the plan was finished, it contained more than half a dozen excellent suggestions for the use and benefit of the prospective employer. The suggestions were put into use by the company. One may be inclined to ask, why go to all this trouble to secure a job? The answer is straight to the point, also dramatic, because it deals with a subject which assumes the proportion of a tragedy with millions of men and women whose sole source of income is personal services. The answer is, doing a thing well never is trouble. The plan prepared by this woman for the benefit of her son helped him get the job for which he applied, at the first interview, at a salary fixed by HIMSELE. Moreover and this, too, is important the position did not require the young man to start at the bottom. He began as a junior executive, at an executive salary. Why go to all this trouble? You ask, well, for one thing, the planned presentation of this young man's application for a position clipped off no less than 10 years of time he would have required to get to where he began had he started at the bottom and worked his way up. This idea of starting at the bottom and working one's way up may appear to be sound, but the major objection to it is this to zero many of those who begin at the bottom never manage to lift their heads high enough to be.
seen by opportunity, so they remain at the bottom. It should be remembered also that the outlook from the bottom is not so very bright or encouraging. It has a tendency to kill off ambition. We call it, getting into a root, which means that we accept our fate because we form the habit of daily routine, a habit that finally becomes so strong we cease to try to throw it off. And that is another reason why it pays to start one or two steps above the bottom. By so doing, one forms the habit of looking around, of observing how others get ahead, of seeing opportunity, and of embracing it without hesitation. Dan Halpin is a splendid example of what I mean. During his college days, he was manager of the famous national championship Notre Dame football team when it was under the direction of Natropne. Perhaps he was inspired by the great football coach to aim high and not mistake temporary defeat for failure, just as Andrew Carnegie, the great industrial leader, inspired his young business lieutenants to set high goals for themselves. At any rate, young Halpin finished college at a mighty unfavorable time, when the depression had made jobs scarce, so, after a fling at investment banking and motion pictures, he took the first opening with a potential future he could find selling hearing aids on a commission basis. Anyone could start in that sort of job, and Halpin knew it, but it was enough to open the door of opportunity to him. For almost two years he continued in a job not to his liking, and he would never have risen above that job if he had not done something about his dissatisfaction. He aimed first at the job of assistant sales manager of his company, and got the job. That one step upward placed him high enough above the crowd to enable him to see still greater opportunity. Also, it placed him where opportunity could see him. He made such a fine record selling hearing aids that A. M. Andrews, chairman of the board of the Dictograph Products Company, a business competitor of the company for which Halpin worked, wanted to know something about that man, Dan Halpin, who was taking big sales away from the long-established Dictograph Company. He sent for Halpin. When the interview was over, Halpin was the new sales manager in charge of Dictograph's Acousticon division. Then to test young Halpin's metal, Mr. Andrews went away to Florida for three months, leaving him to sink or swim in his new job. He did not sink. Not rockin' spirit of all take. World loves a winner and has no time for a loser, inspired him to put so much into his job that he was eventually elected vice president of the company and general manager of the Acousticon and Silent Radio Division, a job most executives would be proud to earn through 10 years of loyal effort. Halpin turned the trick in little more than six months. It is difficult to say whether Mr. Andrews or Mr. Halpin is more deserving of eulogy, for the reason that both showed evidence of having an abundance of that very rare quality known as imagination. Mr. Andrews deserves credit for seeing in young Halpin a go-getter of the highest order. Halpin deserves credit for refusing to compromise with life by accepting and keeping a job he did not want, and that is one of the major points I am trying to emphasize through this entire philosophy that we rise to high positions or remain at the bottom because of conditions we can control i.e. we desire to control them. I'm also trying to emphasize another point, namely, that both success and failure are largely the results of habit. I have not the slightest doubt that Dan Halpin's close association with the greatest football coach America ever knew planted in his mind the same brand of desire to excel which made the Notre Dame football team world famous. Truly, there is something to the idea that hero worship is helpful, provided one worships a winner. Halpin told me that Ropney was one of the world's greatest leaders in all of history. My belief in the theory that business associations are vital factors, both in failure and in success, was demonstrated when my son Blair was negotiating with Dan Halpin for position. Mr. Halpin offered him a beginning salary of about one half what he could have gotten from a rival company. 
I brought parental pressure to bear and induced him to accept the position with Mr. Halpin because I believe that close association with one WHO refuses to compromise with circumstances he does not like is an asset that can never be measured in terms of money. The bottom is a monotonous, dreary, unprofitable place for any person. That is why I have taken the time to describe how lowly beginnings may be circumvented by proper planning. That is why so much space has been devoted to the story about the woman who ended up creating a whole new business as a result of being inspired to do a fine job of planning so that her son could get a favorable break. Point seven. Perhaps some will find in the kind of ideas here briefly described the nucleus of the riches they desire. Simple ideas have been the seedlings from which great fortunes have grown in America. Woolworth's five and ten cent store idea, for example, was so simple at the time as to be almost unworthy of consideration, but it piled up a fortune for its creator. There is no fixed price for sound ideas. Lack of all ideas is specialized knowledge. Unfortunately, for those who do not find riches in abundance, specialized knowledge is more abundant and more easily acquired than ideas. Capability means imagination, the one quality needed to combine specialized knowledge with ideas, in the form of organized plans designed to yield riches. If you have imagination, the stories that have been told in this chapter may stimulate you to come up with an idea sufficient to serve as the beginning of the riches you desire. Remember, the idea is the main thing. Specialized knowledge may be found just around the corner any corner. But imagination is the catalyst that unites a good idea with the specialized knowledge required to translate it into success. Anybody can wish for riches, and most people do, but only a few know that a definite plan, plus a burning desire for wealth, are the only dependable means of accumulating wealth. The only limitation is that which one sets up in one's own mind.